0: I regret finding out why we weren't supposed to go down the river, written by Girl from the Crypt. Growing up, I was strictly forbidden from playing in the river that ran through the nearby woods. It was the same for all the neighborhood children. Nobody cared if we climbed on rocks and trees. Heck, there was one kid who would always try and shoot birds with a slingshot and apparently that was just fine. But if we even dared to mention the river around our parents, they would break into a lecture about how we'd be in big trouble if we were ever to go near it. And Now, in every youth life, there is a time during which they seek to revolt. This phase can result in the strangest behavior, and believe me, I've seen a lot. Like my friend Tali who thought it was a good idea to pierce her ears herself. My rebellion, however, was much simpler. All I needed was to test some of the rules constituted by my mother and father, just to prove to myself and them that they weren't always right. That's why one night while my parents were away, I put on some weatherproof clothes, grabbed my father's flashlight, and marched out the door right into the woods, My destination was the river. I really wasn't expecting a lot. My parents had never given me any reason not to go there, apart from it being dangerous. It had always seemed excessive to me. The river wasn't deep enough to drown in it, and as far as I knew, there weren't any kinds of undercurrents that could have been a threat to us either. I figured my mother and father were just being paranoid though it sure was an oddly specific fear. Still, as I ventured into the woods that night, the beam of the torch illuminating the path ahead of me, I was quite excited, a little nervous even. I found myself unable to stop fidgeting with the multiple zippers on my jacket and every little noise the dark forest produced, be it the crunching of leaves under my own shoes or a twig snapping in the distance causing me to jump. But it wasn't as scary as it was exhilarating, kind of like watching a horror movie. I knew I was close when I could hear water running. Shining my flashlight ahead, I could already make out the shimmering, rippling surface of the dark river. I had only ever looked at it from afar. Just walking up to it was enough to make me shudder. I eventually came down to a halt near the water's edge, and stared down at it. It was beautiful. The light of the full moon was shining down through the canopy of leaves above, and was reflected by the babbling stream. I slowly bent down, careful not to lose my footing and fall in. I raked my hand through the cold water, letting it flow through my fingers and wash out the sweat that had formed on my palm. I stayed like that for a whole minute, almost entranced by the calm sounds of the woods and the river. I remember thinking it would be a nice spot to set up camp for a night. Sleeping there would probably be wonderful. And that's when I heard it. The splashing of a body moving through the stream, pushing the water aside. I jumped to my feet, quickly wiping my hand dry on my jeans so I could firmly cling to the flashlight again. Its beam illuminated a large figure right in front of me, standing in the shallow end of the river just a few steps ahead. It was a stout black horse, easily the biggest one I had ever seen. Its long, dripping wet mane was so long it almost looked to be touching the ground when it lowered its head. Its round, dark eyes had a soft, gentle sheen to them. Had I been an adult, I might have wondered what in the world a horse like that was doing out in the woods in the middle of the night. Back then, however, my first thought was something akin to. It's so pretty. I'm sure I was asking myself how it got there as well, but I wasn't wary of it, let alone scared. The horse appeared to be very calm and tame as well, making no moves to distance itself or even change its position at all. Instead... It shook its head into my direction almost curiously. I took a few cautious steps towards it. It stayed right where it was. My trembling hand outstretched, I continued to approach it. When I was close enough to touch it, I carefully placed my hand on its neck, not sure well to pet it. To my surprise, it leaned into the touch, turning its head to give me that trustful, sweet-tempered look again. I remember thinking that if there was ever a perfect moment, this was it. I turned to its side as well. Its fur was wet, but soft and oddly pleasant to the touch. I was standing on the dry riverbank at the time, the horse just below me. I started to toy with the idea of climbing onto its back. I was in an elevated position, I could probably jump up there. Still, I figured it wasn't a good idea. I didn't want to startle this huge animal. That was until it suddenly bent down a little. Unsure of what it wanted, I took a step back. The horse's head turned to face me again. I'm not sure how best to describe it, but it almost looked encouraging. Suddenly, I had this urge like I for some reason needed to sit on its back. I didn't know what it was like. I simply had to... I tucked away my flashlight and, with some effort, hoisted myself up. It took me a little while, but once I had finally crawled onto the horse's back, it straightened up again. I instinctively leaned down to hug its neck, only then realizing how far up I was and having nothing else to grab onto. Before I could give it any thought, however, the large animal had already started to walk. My former enthusiasm about this whole thing had already started to fade, but as the horse took up running, the truth of how I would probably not get off it unscathed began to sink in. I had never done horseback riding before, so I had no clue how to get it to slow down. Plus, what was I supposed to do with no reins? Shouted it to stop. I tried, but it wasn't very effective, panicking. I figured my only chance would be to jump. At that point, the horse was practically racing through the river. We were still on the very shallow side of it, so there wasn't enough water to slow it down. The clopping and splashing of its hooves felt almost deafening. Still, we were close enough to the dry ground for me to land safely. Bracing myself, I began lifting my left leg over the horse's back, ready to swing myself down only to realize in horror that I couldn't. I was stuck. I could move my legs and the rest of my body, but my hands which had been clutching the animal's neck were basically glued to it. It was as if they were fixed to its fur. The horse was picking up its pace, dashing through the water. Had I not been sealed in place, there was no way I would have been able to hold on to it. And worse yet, it was beginning to pull over into the deeper part of the river, We had left the area that was familiar to me a long time ago already. The woods had started clearing up, and there were less and less trees on our way, just wide, green plains. I knew that the river would get deeper further out, too deep for someone to stand in it, but I would have never gone there on my own. How could this thing even swim so fast? The reality of this creature not being what it seemed was becoming painfully obvious, Looking down at it, I found that its body was starting to change, almost like it was morphing into something else, something less earthly. It had begun to slim, enough for its ribs to show. And glancing over my shoulder at its rear end, I saw that it had elongated, now looking like a fish's tail or the body of a snake, just enormous. It was plowing through the water, sending waves up the riverbank. I was already submerged from my hip and below. Soon, it would be all the way up to my neck. I started to cry and scream, even though I knew nobody would hear me out here. The more that I thrashed around on its back, the faster this water spirit seemed to go, almost like it knew what I was doing. I needed to get my hands loose. It was my only chance. My mind was already racing with thoughts of drowning, water filling my lungs and keeping me from breathing. I wasn't going to die like that. I started to pull back with all my might. My palms were firmly attached to the fur, as if each and every single hair in that spot had drilled itself under my skin. Still, I didn't stop. I needed to get loose. Gritting my teeth, I stiffened my arms and threw back my upper body. I let out a howl of agony as I felt the skin of my palms rip. But I didn't stop. I leaned even further back, pulling against the fur's grip, using my entire weight. And then suddenly, an even sharper sting of pain. It hit so much that it felt like someone had set my arms on fire, but I forced myself to ignore it. I swung myself off the horse's back. I didn't notice it right away, so I swam over to the riverbank as fast as I could. Thankfully, it wasn't too far. The icy water felt both good and torturous on my skinned hands. The cold soothed my burning nerves, but every time I pushed the water aside to move forward, it seemed to press back against the wounds. By the time that I was out of the water, the horse was still on its original course, and it was only when I took off running that it appeared to take note of my absence. Staggering through the darkness, praying not to trip over anything, I heard the creature let out an ungodly sound. It was reminiscent of an A, but warped, distorted and way too deep. I pressed on, my only aim being to get as far away from the water as possible. I did not know if it would follow me through the woods, but I could already make out the splashing of water behind me in the distance, quickly replaced by the clopping of hooves. Glancing over my shoulder, I saw that the horse had just gotten out of the river, but it was still not even close to me. Once it would start to run, I knew that I wouldn't stand a chance. I had to look for something else. A way to hide. My best bet were the trees. The creature could swim, but chances were it couldn't climb. I couldn't really see which trees would be easy to climb up on since they were all just shadowy silhouettes in the darkness, but as I was running out of options, I headed from the tree with the lowest hanging branches. I was never very strong, but adrenaline does funny things to your body. I grabbed onto the lowest and thickest branch that I could reach, the bark painfully scraping my skin palms, and pulled myself up to sit on it with surprisingly a little difficulty. I not wanting to take any chances, I climbed a little higher, now safely out of reach from my pursuer. I moved all the way up to the trunk, keeping my arms around it in hopes of steadying myself in place. Looking down, I spotted movement. As dark as it was, there was no way I would have overlooked the shimmer of the false horse's fur. It looked normal again, gracefully circling my tree. It readied itself to jump and I winced as it laughed, but it missed me by a little over three feet and landed quite unceremoniously in the dirt below. After that, it trotted off again, and I was left by myself staring after it. I waited for what felt like hours, by the time I finally dared to get off that tree... My thighs felt like someone had shoved iron rods into them. My walk home was long and tedious and stiff. The pain in my hands had subsided a little, leaving behind a throbbing sensation. I didn't dare look at the wounds. Instead, I focused on getting out of the woods. The water had rendered my flashlight useless, but I still found myself in a street that I had recognized soon enough. From there on out, it took me two hours to get back to my house. My parents were waiting for me inside. My mother only needed to take a single look at me to come running and throw her arms around me. She didn't seem to care that I was soaking wet and caked in mud. Upon discovering my hands, she let out a cry of terror. Did you go to the river? She gasped, placing her hands on my cheeks. I nodded, too defeated to speak. My poor girl, she whimpered as she hugged me again. This is all our fault. We should have just told you. I knew it was a mistake, making it all mysterious. I just hoped that you would leave it alone. Do you know that you could have died out there? My father inquired, his tone sharp. I could see the tears in his eyes though. My grandfather told me of a little boy who had to cut his fingers off to get away from it. One touch can be enough to bind the skin, sometimes even the flesh. And if you can't tear yourself loose, it's over. It'll drag you down, drown you, and eat you. My mother petted my hair, burying her face against my shoulder. Thank God you're okay. We were already worried when we saw that you were gone. But your shoes and jacket were gone too, and the door was locked so we figured you would have just gone out with a friend. What was that thing? I asked, breathlessly. My father bit his lip, raking one hand through his hair, the other one still busy keeping him on his feet by clinging to the corner of the shelf beside him. We call it a Kelpie. If you're driving back into the city on a windy road, don't let the headlights behind you catch up. Written by Alternate for Memes My collarbones finally healed and I can type comfortably, so here goes nothing. My muscle memory feels expired, so this may be shorter than I would like. I have nothing to complain about, however, because my life was very nearly cut short last November. With the pandemic around, obviously, I was starved for human interaction. So, when my friend invited me to her kid's birthday party at her parents' house, I accepted. It was an hour long drive up and around the hills. One way. I filled my drive there with my favorite music. And I tried to ignore the smell my engine emitted. I was going to ask a mechanic about it that next week. It was a fine drive. And the party was pleasant. I arrived at 6pm. And the kids were put to bed at around 9pm. With the kids in bed and my friend rightfully exhausted. I said goodbye to everyone, and I began to head out. I hugged all of the people, said some see you later phrase, and jumped in my death trap of a car. After a brief deliberation, I decided to play some more music instead of podcasts, since I was trying not to drift off into a sleep, It was an hour past my bedtime, and I was eager to get home for the night. Starting down that road, I recognized familiar nighttime landmarks that I hadn't seen since the pandemic had begun. I laughed at myself for taking the turns at a reasonable speed for once. No longer tempting fate with 70 miles per hour on a 40 mile per hour turn. Well, this is where my story really begins. The exposition is complete. About ten minutes into the drive, I passed through a roundabout to get on the freeway home. It was mostly straight, with some surprising turns that were thankfully well marked. There was a car in front of me, was obeying the speed limit of 55 miles per hour, and they eventually turned into a small town, allowing me to go the 75 miles per hour that I was used to. The music that I was playing pushed me to go faster, and it helped me sustain my ignorant confidence in my driving ability. Being a delivery driver for a living, I turned off the thinking parts of my brain and let my body do the driving. It knew instinctively how to react when anything happened. Turn signs caused me to take my car out of gear and tap the brake to slow down in time. Going downhill in neutral, I would still pick up speed and my body knew exactly how quickly I could take each turn to feel that adrenaline rush of reckless driving, riding the literal edge of the road for just a cheap thrill. I was 30 minutes away from the town now, and I saw taillight in front of me on that road. It was a green pickup truck, very modest, going the speed limit. I was thankful when they had pulled into the turnout to let me breeze past them. Surprisingly, they did not continue driving when I passed them. I watched their headlights, waiting for them to get back on the road, but they never did. My body began to speak without words. It spoke in emotions, chemicals through my brain. And I responded with a speech. We understood each other. Fear. Why? Out of place. Uneasy. Wrong. Oh, it's fine. They're probably taking a breather. Maybe they're a student driver. Calm. Talking to myself has always helped me to process the world around me, so this was nothing new. But in the back of my mind, the nagging feeling lingered that the unintelligent part of my brain had had a point. Good thing I start therapy soon. My anxiety is getting way out of hand the driver continued and i was alone again a glance in the rearview mirror showed only darkness so complete that i could swear the glass was painted and ahead of me my high beams illuminated a desert and trees on either side of the highway this did not last forever my body registered a stimuli and glanced in the rearview mirror once more. This time, spotting two headlights coming around a turn, my body began communicating once more. Fear. Green truck. It's not the green truck. We passed them a while ago. Being chased. Malice. Malice. My heart dropped deeper into my chest. No. Danger. Move. Why am I scared? This is a highway. Of of course someone would eventually come up behind me. Move. Fast. I resisted the urge to hammer the accelerator. I'm freaking out over nothing. Wrong. Move. The road lurched to the right, and I followed the curve. With the headlights gone behind the curve, my inner monologue ceased for a moment. Yet, the fear lingered. It was nothing to worry about. I was safe. Perhaps I was afraid because the headlights had caught up to me, While I was speeding, it did seem unnatural that someone could drive that fast. Maybe they're driving at a similar pace, but they know the road so they take the turns faster, and they're saving time for that reason. The road straightened out, and my music hammered on. I still felt uneasy and I checked the rearview mirror frequently eventually the lights returned danger predator coming move why am I but then I saw it the lights were following closer than they were before he knows you know move what do I know He equals a predator. He's not even coming any closer. He's maintaining a consistent distance. If he was coming for me, he'd be riding my bumper by now. He knows you know. I stared straight ahead at the road in front of me, concentrating on keeping my breathing even. Fear is a drug, indeed. Just in case. I pushed a little harder on the accelerator. 80 miles per hour. Just in case. Left turn ahead. I take it. And the lights are obscured once more by the hillside. My breathing gets easier. But the feeling of being pursued... It persists. The road streams out. I begin to count. One, two, three, four, five, six. Boom. Headlights. Move. Oh, relax. Look. Six seconds of distance. Remember that. My body kept insisting that I listen to my flight response, which was now ramping up. My breathing became deeper as my anxiety began mounting even further. Stay calm. Just wait for the next curve. 15 more minutes until we get to the town. I got this. Of course I got this. It's just driving ahead of an excited sports car driver. Green truck. Move. Whatever. Road turns right ahead, 35 miles per hour. Move. I take the car out of gear to decelerate. Danger. Move. I apply the brake. Fear. Move. I take the turn going 60 miles per hour and soon my body begins screaming for a different reason. Follow the road. Go. Move. Slow down. Too fast. Slip and slide. Drop. By the time the road straightens out, I'm going 45 miles per hour. Headlights. I check the mirror. Nothing. The headlights are still on the turn. Uh, too late. I begin counting from two. Two. Three. Four. Boom. Headlights. Go. I listen, put the vehicle in low gear and actually floor it. Don't look. Faster. My left hand follows the road, while my right has the shifter and a death grip. My body is doing the driving. 85 miles per hour. Check. I look in the rear view, and the headlights are the same distance as they were before. Matching at my speed. He knows. Outrun him. Need to. You're right. He is getting closer. Maybe I'll use a turnout to let him pass. No. Under no circumstances, not happening. Move. What? I maintain my speed. I passed the turnout. The headlights were closer now. What? What? Go, move. I hammered the pedal, and the smell of my engine reminded me that this car may quit if I push it too far. Not important. Move. Survive. He knows. Predator. Go. 90 miles per hour. The headlights are still maintaining a consistent distance. 95 miles per hour. The distance has shrunk. Left turn ahead. 25 mile per hour speed limit. Too slow. How do I make the turn then? No. The turn is approaching as are the headlights. Tailgating is death. He's too fast. Evade. What do I do? What do I do? Crash into the tree. My eyes lock into a tree straight ahead, past the turn. Turn. Tree. Turn. Tree. Turn. Tree. I check my rear view. The headlights are beneath my rear window. Death. Tree. I listened. I glanced down at my speedometer, showed that I had kept the gas down. 105 miles per hour. I looked back up The tree was alarmingly closed My body had nothing left to say The choice was made My heart dropped Deeper to my chest and the air Left my lungs I wrapped my car around that tree That night Just minutes from home I had a devastating accident People heard the impact From their homes Hidden along the highway Needless to say I suffered some injuries. Surprisingly, they weren't plentiful. My collarbones were broken. I got severe whiplash and required a neck brace. And my seatbelt squeezed three of my ribs until they cracked along my left side. All things considered, I did well. I don't know why the instinctual part of my brain insisted that we not get caught by those headlights. It was the most visceral fear that I had felt up until then. The feeling of a tiger stalking towards me, forcing me to walk backward, fighting the urge to run. I knew that I was in danger. Looking back, I can't figure out how I knew that. But I felt in the same way you feel the other person's body during a hug, or the hot chocolate slide down your throat after a winter hike. It was almost sensory, like I could detect the fear as a real entity. Truth be told, I don't know what I would have happened if those lights got to me. They were moving too fast when unseen, and only revealed their true nature once within closing distance. The unconscious region of my brain knew that I could not allow them to reach me, and that wrapping my car around a tree would help me. I don't doubt it either. On the bright side, I never had to take that car to the mechanic to investigate the fumes. I don't think it'll pass smog again. There's an ancient tribe residing in our local woods. Written by... Girl from the Crypt. When my dog ran off into the woods during one of our walks, I knew that I couldn't chase after her right away. Everyone in our town knew that the woods weren't empty. There was something in there, and especially the older residents insisted that it was people. Or at least, something akin to people. They called them the tribe. I never fully embraced these beliefs, but I still acted according to them. There were just too many things off about the woods for the tribe to be nothing but an old legend. The fact that everyone was utterly convinced the tribe was real in itself was a cause for concern. I had never heard of anybody venturing into the forest, not even to prove the saying wrong. There was nobody working there either, despite the area being so huge. If the woods were normal, chances are they'd be foresters and woodcutters or maybe even hunters in there, that's what I figured, Our pets usually stayed far away from the tree line as well. At that point, I had no idea why Chips, my dog, had gone off there in the first place. She had never shown any interest in the woods and had even seemed apprehensive about getting too close to them. That's why I always thought it was safe to walk alongside the tree line. I was sure that she would never leave my side. Her tearing the leash from my hands and dashing off into the thicket that day... ...had happened completely unexpectedly. At least I knew who to go to for advice. There's this guy named Duncan. He's very old. Maybe even the oldest man in the entire town. And definitely the most knowledgeable. He hangs out at a small pub most of the time. So I was sure that I would find him there. I got on my way as fast as I could... When I arrived at the bar, I needed to stop for a moment to catch my breath, before looking around inside. The interior was dark in its colors, the wood of the floor and the counter as well, as the tables being of a warm, deep brown. The lights were just bright enough for me to easily spot the man that I had been looking for over in one of the corner tables. There weren't a lot of other people inside the pub at the time. Duncan lifted his head in mild surprise when he noticed me approaching. We weren't total strangers, and in town as small as ours, basically everyone knew everyone. Hello, I gasped. He lifted his glass to me with a lazy smile of greeting, but didn't say anything. I need to go into the woods. My dog ran off. He gave me a nod, as if to tell me to say no more. "'You went straight to business. First off, go in there by yourself. "'They don't take kindly to groups and noise. "'And be respectful to those you meet inside.' "'He lowered his head slightly. "'You know, they don't refrain from leaving those woods "'because they don't want to. "'Does that mean they're trapped there or something?' "'Not trapped. "'The woods are their home, and this is ours.' and we've forbidden them from entering ours. That's why they don't come out. Duncan looked me over, his brows creased almost like he was trying to figure out if I would understood the gravity of the situation. Seemingly satisfied, he nodded and went on. <laughs> the woods are big, easy to get lost in. There is a single path through. It leads into the woods and it'll lead you back out. You're safe there. Follow it and you won't get lost. Duncan gave me a few seconds to let everything sink in before continuing once more. You don't want to give anyone in there your real name. Names are a taboo. Knowing your name will give them power over you to be used in our world. His words were ominously cryptic. What do you mean by that? I asked. It means you won't be able to get rid of them. He sighed. Never mind. Just don't let it come to that. Make up a nickname or something and expect them to do the same. They're very careful with that kind of thing. That's easy enough to remember, I would say. You'll eventually come across the people in there and you're going to have to talk to them. There is no way around it. I don't want to scare you, but the further you proceed into those woods, the crazier the ones you're going to meet will be noticing my unease Duncan gave me a quick smile it'll be okay just hurry get in and get out quickly and avoid the deeper parts if you can if you stay for too long the people there in the woods themselves are gonna start messing with your head it's tricky everything's different in there space, time even just keep that in mind the whole place is going to want to screw you over he let out a husky laugh, though I wasn't sure what he thought was funny. I stood up, thanking him profusely. I couldn't waste any more time. I hoped chips hadn't gone deeper into the woods in the meantime. I was prepared well enough as I was. I still had all of my dog walking supplies in my pockets, treats for chips, pepper spray and handkerchiefs, in case it would be dark. I would have to make do with the flashlight on my phone, but that was alright. I headed straight for the woods. I knew where to find the path. I had walked by it before. Actually stepping onto it, however, felt quite different. There was a strong sense of unease within me all of a sudden. I was barely two steps past the tree line, and already I felt like I was in a whole other world. Maybe it was all the expectation... The anxiety built by Duncan's instructions. But when I turned to glance behind me, back outside, it looked so far away. The trail was just wide enough for me to stand on. The feeling of dread grew stronger the further I went. The trees around me stood tall and imposing. And in some places, their leaves were so lush that I couldn't see the sky above. I tried to calm my mind by listening to my surroundings. They say these sounds of nature are the most soothing there are, but somehow, the singing of the birds and the quiet chirping of insects around me only added to my discomfort. Suddenly, there was something else. The sound of water trickling down and hitting the soft forest floor. Slightly startled, I glanced around frantically only to find the source Just a few meters ahead of me. It was a man. His back was turned to me, and he was facing the tree in front of him. He probably hadn't noticed me yet, so I turned to look away and nervously cleared my throat. Yeah, I know you're there. Give me a second, will you? I'm kinda busy here. Oh, I'm sorry, I stammered, feeling my cheeks heat up. It's fine. The sound of the liquid running ceased and after two more seconds, I dared to turn around to him. I don't know what I had been expecting, but he was an it. I looked over him as discreetly as I could. He was short about my height and about the same age as me too. His clothes were fairly normal as well. Jeans, boots, and a white flannel shirt the latter of which was just a bit too baggy to flatter his slight frame. His dark, overgrown hair and the stubble on his face made him look a bit unkempt. "'Nice to meet you,' I said slowly. "'If you don't mind, I would like to ask you something. I hope it's not. Don't talk fancy with me. It makes me want to puke.' "'Got it,' I muttered, a bit embarrassed.' That had been clear enough, though. Say, do you live here? You don't look like... I do, though. So? I'm looking for my dog. She's white with black speckles, pretty big. I held my hand up to my hip to indicate her height. I haven't seen her, he replied. Man, pets don't run in here for no reason. What do you mean... Maybe someone lured it away without you noticing. We can do stuff like that, you know. I'd watch my back if I were you. I swallowed, holding his gaze. I appreciate the advice, I finally said. I'll be on my way. The man in the white shirt gave me an indifferent shrug. Take care, I guess. I turned to leave with a queasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. Glancing back over my shoulder, I found that the man was gone. Unnerved, I stuck to the path, focusing on looking around without leaving it. I called off for chips every other minute, hesitant to alert anyone yet hopeful to spot my dog come running towards me from somewhere in the underbrush. There was no such luck. I did gain someone else's attention, though. She appeared right ahead of me, just a few feet off to the side from the path. An elderly woman with long gray hair and a wrinkled face. She was wearing a long, dirty dress that had probably been white at one point. She stood unmoving, even as I kept approaching. I cleared my throat. Hello? I called out, stopping in my tracks. I didn't want to get too close to her. She didn't answer. Excuse me, have you seen a dog come through? I shouted. The woman slowly started walking towards me. Her steps were lumbering and heavy. Her head lowered, her hair fell down to cover her face like a stringy, torn up veil. Despite her sluggish movements, I was beginning to grow nervous. Something about the way she was stalking towards me made me feel like I was prey about to be lunged at. And not wanting to show my fear, I cautiously backed away. Don't come any closer, I told her in the most commanding moist that I could muster. I reached into my pocket, fumbling for the small can of pepper spray. I had no idea if I would be able to defend myself with it at all, but I figured it would be better than nothing. Please, I said, I'm not here to hurt you. The old woman extended her hand to touch my face. Her nails were long, sharp, and cracked, and they looked almost like claws. I didn't dare to move when she ran them through my hair, her dull eyes staring into mine. I held my breath. What was I supposed to do? Shove her away. I didn't want to risk provoking her. And then suddenly, she went for my throat. I was just fast enough to duck away and avoid her twisted, bony fingers. I dashed forward and took off running, my feet drumming on the soft, dirt ground. I blindly raced ahead. I felt the can of pepper spray fall out of my open pocket, but I didn't stop to pick it up. Risking a glance over my shoulder, I saw her lumbering after me. She was not very fast though and I noticed that she never once set foot on the path. It was like she needed to stay off of it for some reason. Still, that didn't mean she couldn't hurt me. There was a low thud behind me. I staggered to a halt and turned to find that the old woman was lying on the ground, next to her a small rock. It must have hit her on the head. It had obviously caused her to tumble. Despite that... She was already pulling herself back up, and I took off down the trail again. At least this would help me lose her. I kept running until my sides were burning with pain, and the sweat from my forehead was dripping down my neck. It was only when I was absolutely sure that she wasn't behind me anymore that I finally slowed down, and I dropped to my knees. My throat was sore and dry. Taking deep breaths, I sucked in the cool, fresh air. I was quietly muttering phrases of reassurance to myself, mixed with the occasional swear word. Suddenly, I heard someone clear their throat. I spun around, only to find the man in the white shirt from before standing behind me. He looked rather pleased with himself. Did you throw that rock? I did. Thank you so much, I... He silenced me with a dismissive wave of his hand, but he was still smiling. "'I bet she's more like what you were expecting to see here.' He laughed and shook his head. "'Look, I don't really get why you're chasing after that mutt, but for what it's worth, I'm sure it's going to be interesting to watch. If you'll allow it, I'd like to come along. That'd be mutually beneficial, right? I'm not saying that'll i carry you around or anything.' but I'd make myself useful, help you out a bit. He drew out his words, leaving them to linger in the air. I didn't need to think about the offer very long. Yes, please. He allowed his smile to widen, looking excited as he wiped his hands on his pants. This should be fun. Plenty, I muttered. Hey, um, I know real names are taboo, but... About that... I overheard two kids walk along the tree line talking a while ago. One was telling this story about someone named Tam Lin. It's too long to tell you about it. He almost sounded embarrassed. But I like this story so, that's what I would like for you to call me, Tam Lin. Tam Lin saved me the effort of making up a name for my own, seeing as he simply began calling me Janet I had little to say in it, but I figured complaining wouldn't help. Who was that woman? What did she want? I eventually asked him. We had been walking for a while, me on the path and him beside it. Who can I say? I don't know her personally. We're not like one big family here, he began. Maybe she wanted to eat you, or maybe she was lonely and wanted company but didn't know how to go about it. Are there more like her? Yes, there is always more. On the plus side, it's rare to come across the aggressive ones. I don't even know what she was doing so close to the path. The likes of her usually stay in hiding. Right, the path. Why don't you walk on it? Because your people put it there, he replied, seemingly thinking this is a valid explanation. It's not our ground to tread on. Tam wasn't uncommunicative. He asked me a lot of things about myself, my everyday life, and even my dog. I tried to tell him as much as I could without giving away anything that I shouldn't. He didn't like talking about the woods, though, and I suspected he was tired of the topic. It would turn out that he was quite the skilled guide. Sometimes we would hear odd noises ahead, like shouting or chanting, and he would make us stay in place until they faded into the distance. He could sense when there was somebody ahead that we needed to be wary of, and told me when it was safe to call for chips and when to stay silent. Tam himself would occasionally stray from my side and go deeper into the woods in search of the dog so I wouldn't have to leave the path. I watched the sunset through the canopy of leaves above We hadn't come across anyone else And there was no trace of chips I was tired and my feet were starting to hurt I couldn't believe that the woods were too big to comb through In an entire day I had never imagined them to be this huge I thought about calling my parents but Not wanting to worry them I decided against it I lived next door to them in a much tinier house that also belonged to us. They wouldn't notice my absence for the time being. The forest floor was soft... ...but still quite unpleasant to sleep on. Tam was obviously unfazed by the prospect of resting on the bare ground... ...but he didn't give me grief for being squeamish. The uncomfort was one thing... ...but what was worse was that I felt utterly exposed... I spent the night wide awake, restless and afraid. Nothing happened, though. When Tam woke up, it was still dark. There was no reason to keep lying around, so we moved on. I saw the sun rise overhead. We kept calling out for chips, but still came up with nothing. Remembering what Duncan had said about the more dangerous inhabitants of the woods living further in the back, I asked Tam if it was true. "'I guess,' he replied curtly. "'It made me think. "'I wasn't feeling well and there was no trace of Chips. "'The further we would go in, the more threats there would be on the way. "'Was my dog even alive anymore? "'Maybe,' I thought. "'Just maybe it would be better for me to simply go back. "'I'm pretty sure Tam knew what I was thinking.' He did his best to encourage me, probably afraid to lose his temporary source of entertainment this early on. Nay, hey, you can do this. I'll keep you safe, okay? And Do you need anything? I know where to get you food and water if that's what you want.' Water. I had all but forgotten about how thirsty I was. Duncan had told me not to eat or drink here, but he had also said that if I had to, I could. What other solution was there anyways?' Tam assured me that the water was clean and safe to consume. He said that he would fetch it from a nearby creek. He offered to take me with him, but I told him that I would rather stay in the path. Otherwise, we would end up lost. A lump in my throat, I watched him walk off. I wasn't thrilled about being on my own, but I knew that I was safe in the path. I tried to curl up in the middle of it hoping to hide myself or at least keep my head low. I felt like an idiot and it wasn't too effective either. My stomach dropped when I suddenly heard multiple sets of footsteps up ahead. The unmistakable crunching of leaves and stamping of twigs came closer and closer and I nervously stared off into the direction they were coming from. Soon enough, I spotted four figures appearing from behind a bunch of hedges Noticing they were drawing closer, I staggered to my feet. It looked to be three women and a man, all of them dressed in rags rather than actual clothing. Carefully staying beside the trail, they slowly walked up to me. The one that came closest first was one of the women. She was tall, almost unnaturally so. Her hair was tousled and reached all the way down to her hip. Her face was covered in a mix of scars and slowly healing open wounds, as though something or someone had scratched and cut it up. The skin around the cuts was frayed and dirty. Hello. Her tone was almost cordial, but there was something about her voice that threw me off. It didn't sound as though speech came natural to her, more like she was mimicking a voice she had heard before without understanding the meaning of the word. It was simply off. I returned her greeting, eyes downcast as the other three stepped up to me as well. Are you here on your own? The woman asked. No, I have someone with me. He'll be back soon. Oh, where did he go? She didn't sound like she believed me. To get water, I muttered. So, he's from the woods. Yes. I finally dared to meet her gaze. Her eyes were too wide to look normal. I toyed with the idea of asking her about chips, and eventually pressed out the question, shifting my weight from one foot to another uncomfortably. That dog is yours. Oh, I've seen it. Quiet chuckles rippled through the small group as they exchanged knowing glances. I can show you where, but you would have to come with us, obviously. She regarded me with a half-smile. I doubted she actually expected me to agree. I would have been pretty stupid to do so. Get back, I told her firmly. As she leaned in to sniff my shoulder, she straightened up again. Then one of her companions reached out and before I knew it, she had pushed me and I staggered. "'landing on my behind on the ground beside the path. "'Before I could get up again, "'the tall woman grabbed me by the back of my neck "'and lifted me off my feet. "'You see, now we're on the same page. "'Not that bad, is it?' "'She hissed softly, "'that alligator-like smirk still on her chapped, thin lips. "'Let go of me,' I growled, "'suppressing the fear in my voice as I struggled "'and eventually managed to tear out of her grasp.' her nails leaving painful marks on my skin. I couldn't get back on the path in time though as the man from the group had moved in front of me, blocking it off. I stumbled away from him and the tall lady while the other two quickly stepped over the trail to join us on the other side. It's been a while since I've talked to one of your people, the giant woman said, slowly proceeding towards me. See my face, she went on, tilting her head. That was one of you guys. Now, I doubt there's any relation between you and him, but I'm sure that you understand my wish to compensate. I didn't care to find out how exactly she wanted to do that. I hastily took off in the opposite direction, praying the head start would allow me to shake them off. I could already hear them starting to run after me. In between, gasped air. I screamed for Tamlin in the vain hope that he was somewhere nearby. I tried to keep my pace, chasing off birds and critters alike as my leaps slowly turned into lumbering, faltering hops. Like a pack of wolves, the group was still in my heels, and they were catching up, tiring me out. Looking over my shoulder, I saw the tall woman leading her hunting party, a triumphant leer already on her face, when all of a sudden... A figure burst out from the underbrush, and lunged at her from the side. The lady was too surprised to react, and before I could blink, the other person had thrown her to the ground. I could see them clearly now, and my chest grew light with relief when I recognized that Tamlin, crouching on the larger woman's chest, he dug his fingers into her face, grabbing onto the flayed edges of her wounded skin and starting to pull. Her scream was blood-curdling, an ear-piercing wail well of agony. Her three companions had stopped in their tracks, staring at the scene in shock but not doing anything to stop it. After just a few seconds, Tam got up. In his hand, a small, red patch of torn skin, which he dropped to the ground as he backed off. What followed was an awkward display. The woman staggered to her feet as we stood and stared. The pack looked back at us in stunned silence. They were first to turn and leave, though. It was only when we couldn't see them anymore that I dared to turn and face Tam Lin. You left the path, he said, sounding soberly astounded rather than angry. I couldn't speak. My throat sore from all the screaming. Still close to tears, I nodded quietly. Tam swallowed. He looked uneasy, but managed to give me a smile. It's okay, we'll find it again. We'll just, we need to get you water first anyways. I found the creek, but it's just a little bit ahead. Let's go there first, and then we'll look for the trail. I nodded again, following him once more as he led me through the trampled down bushes that he had emerged from. The creek was nice and clear completely undisturbed in its route through the forest. I didn't bother looking for any sort of cup. I simply dropped to my knees and began to shovel the water into my mouth with both hands. Before long, I dipped my head into it too, greedily sucking it up as Tam I stood and watched. Once I was full, I let out a deep, content sigh and plopped down in the tall grass. I had forgotten how thirsty I had been this whole time, we stayed for only a few minutes before, making our way back to the path. And that's when, disaster struck. There's no way to talk around it. We couldn't find it anymore. We searched all of the surrounding terrain, trying to spot it in the thicket but to no avail. By the time the sun had set, I was starting to panic. I took out my phone, hoping to find a map of this place and perhaps call my parents, only to find that the battery had died It was completely useless. Night fell and we had come to stop and get some rest. And then sunrise came again and we moved on. This cycle would repeat itself four times before I lost hope. I still remember the exact moment I realized it was futile. There was no way out anymore. The woods had swallowed it. I was trapped. It took me a long time to accept my fate. I cried for two entire days. Tamlin tried to console me, but despite his good intentions, he failed. I'd never see my parents again. I would never find myself in the comforts of my home. After these two days, however, things changed. I grew melancholy and then oddly content. The woods have an eerily soothing effect on those that it captures. That's the only way that I can explain it. I kept looking for Chips, hoping to at least reunite with her one day. We asked everyone that we met on our journeys through these endless woods. That's another weird thing. It didn't feel like I was an outsider anymore. The tribespeople, however bizarre and intimidating they'd seem, would treat me as one of their own. I wasn't being hunted anymore. I got used to sleeping on the cold ground. I even began to appreciate it. Whenever I would rest my head on it, I felt as though I was listening to the Earth's heartbeat. Tamlin and I would sleep side by side like we had during my first night here. And then we moved closer to one another. And then even closer still. I became accustomed to the warmth of his breath on my neck. It was a soft, comforting feeling him holding my hand and pressing his cheek to mine. One day, he uttered his true name to me and I told him my own. I would rarely feel hunger or thirst anymore and on the few occasions that I did, the woods would feed me. I think I must have forgotten why I had gone down that path in the first place. I forgot about who I was and what life outside had been like. I even forgot about chips. I kept on counting the days, though, even though I had forgotten why. 988. That's how many sunrises passed until the day that I woke up to barking. I hadn't heard any sounds like it in so long that I couldn't even place it at first. My eyes adjust to the bright sunlight, I could make out something large and dark right above me. When it came down to touch my face, I found it to be wet and warm a snout. By the time a large pink tongue came out of it and started to lick the length of my cheek, I was certain. And then it all came back to me. It was my sweet, giant puppy. Her collar was still around her neck, the leash attached to it dirty and caked with mud as it had been dragging behind her all this time. I stared at her for a minute straight before I dared to reach out and touch her afraid I would find her to be an illusion or some sort of fever dream. My hands met with matted fur and warm skin underneath. I grabbed her, pulled her onto my lap and hugged her tightly. I couldn't believe it. All memory of her had been erased from my mind. For all I knew, she could have died in those woods months ago. But there she was. Tam looked on in disbelief. Chips began to hop around, looking excited. She ran ahead for a bit and then returned, almost like she wanted to show me something. I rushed after her and Tam followed. Chips led us through the tall grass and hedges in a weird, bendy route that made me wonder where we were going to end up. We wandered around for almost the entire day before finding ourselves in a spot that looked faintly familiar to me. It's hard to remember details of a place where there is nothing but greenery, but I knew that I had seen it before. And then I saw it. The narrow little dirt path. I was going to get home. After all this time, I hadn't even thought of it as possible. My desire to return to my former life was greater than ever, and I was finally hopeful again. I picked up Chip's leash and grabbed a tan by the hand... Dragging him along with me as I took up running. I didn't stop, not even when I was starting to get tired. Finally, I saw a light up ahead, brighter than the sunlight I had seen filtered through the leaves. It was the end of the path, the exit. I slowed down, my breathing ragged and strained. Chips nudged my arm with her head, and I turned to look back at Tam. "'So, you're leaving?' he said. "'Honestly, I didn't think you would. Ever. "'Me neither,' I admitted. "'I squeezed his hand before letting go of it.' "'He nodded slowly and reached up to scratch the back of his neck. "'I won't lie, with you gone, there's no reason for me to stay any longer either,' he muttered. "'I thought that you would stay here with me, you see.' I was happy when we were all by ourselves. I could have left already when you told me your name, but I didn't want to. I Well, it doesn't matter anymore, does it? I stared at him with wide eyes, unable to comprehend what he was saying. He just smiled, walking ahead of me towards the exit. It was only then that I noticed that he was walking on the path just like me. He had been right behind me this entire time and I hadn't even realized it. Now standing by the edge of the forest, Tam motioned for me to follow. Still utterly confused, I hurried to join him. When we stepped outside of the woods, the light was almost blinding. I blinked but Tam stared up at the bright sky, completely unfazed. It feels so different here, he breathed. Lightly kicking the ground with his boot. It's not like what I imagined, but it's nice. He turned to me with a curious expression. Is it the way you remembered? I was too stunned to say a word. Tam tilted his head at me. You don't have to look so shocked. It was you who told me your name. That meant a lot to me, and it still does. Knowing the name of one of your people... It makes us special. It means we can tread on your ground. That we can leave. Not my original goal. I just wanted your company. Before all of this, I would see you every time you walked by the woods with that dog. I was always watching, and I kept wondering what you were like. I made up my little plan and it worked, as you can see. He let out a soft chuckle. I told you some of us are lonely. so... I wasn't completely dishonest with you. I even said that pets don't run off there for no reason. Frowning, he added, I don't know how Chips found you again. I thought that I lured her deep enough into the forest for her to never get back, especially with her little doggy brain. It took me a little while to regain my ability to speak. You can't be serious... I figured this would come as a surprise. I was not never obvious about it. That's why I didn't come along with you right away either. He gave me an almost sad smile. Honestly, I feel bad about it. I really do. I know how much you wanted to go home. I was not never going to use force to keep you in there. I just kept leading you away from the path once I got the chance. I messed with your head a little. Didn't let you see your way home. But it was the woods influence too. What? You said you could check the data in your phone. We're outside. It'll work now. Check. I reached into my pocket, fumbling for my cell phone only to find that I could actually turn it on. It was extremely low on battery, but it worked. A look at the date told me that exactly three days had passed since I last looked at it. "'That's impossible,' I breathed. "'How? I counted the days.' "'That's not my doing. It's the woods. "'They can make you think a few hours or months and that a week is an eternity. "'Humans come and go, and all experience that effect.' "'My head swam and there was an odd ringing in my ears.' I felt like I was going to pass out. And you're letting me go. It was difficult finding and forming those words, but I forced them through my trembling lips. And nonetheless, what else am I supposed to do? I don't want to hurt you. I'm just going to see what this side of the world has to offer. It wasn't my initial plan, but I guess it could be worse. At least it's a change. Do you know how boring it is to stay in the same place for decades, centuries? We've been there for so long. No wonder some of us have gone insane over time. And when you're in there, you keep seeing the ones outside. You people and, well, you never think you're going to get out. Until you do, I guess. I stared at him with wide, incredulous eyes and my mouth was agape. Tamlin took my hand again. Seemingly trying to look encouraging. I would have pulled away had it not been for me being frozen in place. I'm gonna be good, I promise, he said softly, an almost childlike glee in his gaze. I won't hurt anybody here. I'll make myself fit in just fine. Besides, things worked out for the one you call Duncan as well. I've died twice, and I've seen the afterlife. It's not what you think. Written by Klung J1 It happened so quick the first time. Like a blinkin', you would miss it kind of fast. I was taking one of my daily evening walks that I took every night. As I was crossing the street heading back to my house... I saw the bright lights of the car coming straight towards me, and then seconds later I saw nothing, and I was taken to a new existence, one that I learned is not very pleasant. Before I get to all that, let me introduce myself. My name is Joe and I'm a pretty normal guy. I'm 30 years old and I work as a construction worker. I'm not married and I don't have any kids. The only company I have is my bulldog, Russell. I live in a simple, one-story house and I don't really go out too much. I don't have any friends and the only visitor I get from time to time is my younger sister, Janice, as my parents moved almost five hours from where I live. I didn't have a good relationship with them. I felt they didn't accept where I ended up in life. While my sister was rich, living the life in Los Angeles, as an executive producer for a hit TV show, I was stuck in a mediocre job, barely paying the bills. I had a great relationship with my sister though. We would go out for coffee once a month if she was available. She also had two kids who I also had a good relationship with. I was good old Uncle Jay to them. I'm a pretty boring guy to be honest The only fun thing I really enjoy doing is taking long evening walks by myself You're probably wondering why I don't take Russell with me Russell doesn't like going out at night He whimpered the whole time that I took him out one time and I was constantly dragging him I didn't mind not having him out Most people feel safe having a dog with them on walks at night But I never felt fear from the night. I love the quietness of everything. It's so peaceful and relaxing. I would think a lot on my walks. About my life, jobs, future, etc. Now back to the story. I didn't remember feeling any pain from the impact. As soon as the car hit me, everything went black. I found myself falling falling into complete and utter darkness. I landed with a hard thump on the ground after falling for what felt like forever. I don't know when, but I eventually woke up after the fall. The impact had caused me to black out for God knows how long. I stood up, staring into the emptiness of the dark void around me. Hello? I called out as my voice echoed all around me nothing but my voice echoing all around me. I started to panic then. Am I dead? Is this heaven or hell? Is this where we go when we die? Suddenly, a loud voice boomed behind me. Joe Dafford, your trial will commence. I felt two huge hands suddenly lift me up off the ground. While screaming and crying out, I tried to scramble around and get away from the grips, but they were too strong. The voice then spoke again. Stop your petty cries. They will do you no good where you may go. I could barely whimper out. Where where am I? The voice was silent and then it boomed, making my eardrums ring as I heard it say. You are in the Forgotten, a void between space and time where you will be judged for your sins. I asked again a little louder. Are you God? The voice laughed, a laugh that made the void around me shake. Stupid human, there is no God. There is only us, the elders. We have ruled this universe before time even existed. We are the creators and the destroyers." I couldn't comprehend what I was hearing now. I wasn't a religious guy at all, but I still believed there was a god in this world. Now, to know that we were ruled by a group of such powerful beings, it truly terrified me. "'Why can't I see you?' I asked. The voice said a little softer. We have no form. Our form is only visible amongst ourselves. If I were to show you my form, you would be blinded for all eternity. I thought now, what could be so powerful that its look alone could blind someone? What are they going to do to me? I can read your thoughts, human, to answer you again. I am judging you to see where your presence belongs now. The voice paused and then said, Joe Dafford, your sins have been collected. We shall now see where you belong. Suddenly, I was taken to a place. A place so horrible and disturbing that I couldn't even open my eyes once I saw it. Fire was all around me. I looked around to see people burning alive and being tortured in the most painful and unimaginable ways. I opened my eyes again to see hands reaching down and pulling me into the fire. I screamed and kicked with no results. They kept dragging me down as their screams filled my ears. And Then I was back in the void. I heard the voice boom now. You are lucky, human. The council has spoken, and we have decided to give you another chance. Your sins have not been forgotten, though. Be wise with the choices you make now. I felt myself falling again now, into the void, going deeper and deeper, as my screams echoed all around me. I then suddenly woke up to find myself in the hospital. I looked to see my sister and the doctor looking at me, bewildered. ''How is this possible?'' I heard the doctor say. ''How long was I out for?'' I asked in a weak voice. ''Joe, you were dead for twelve hours,'' my sister said with tears in her eyes as she hugged me. ''Dead? Twelve hours?'' It felt like I was maybe there for an hour. The doctor just stared at me now, still with a bewildered look in his eyes. After a couple more minutes, the doctor finally said, How do you feel? Fine, I said. Fine. You have six cracked ribs, a concussion, one of your legs is broken, and your collarbone is too. He said in shock. Oh, why don't I feel it? I can't move one of my legs, but it feels like it's asleep, not broken. My head doesn't hurt at all. I can breathe normally, my ribs feel fine. I touched them and I could feel the multiple cracks, nothing. The doctor kept me in the hospital for the next week with my sister visiting almost every day. She constantly asked me what happened after I died, what I saw. I didn't want to tell her though, not because I was afraid that she wouldn't believe me, but because I didn't want to think about what I saw. The horrors of what I believed to be hell gave me frequent nightmares. The arms that I could still feel wrapping themselves around me, dragging me below. The doctor eventually let me out after some convincing from my sister and me, When I got home, my mind thought to the last thing the elder had said to me. Your sins have not been forgotten, though. Be wise with the choices you make now. What did he mean by that? Sure, I've made mistakes in the past. Even was a cigarette addict once. I got over that, though. And I don't drink or do anything remotely like that. I just decided I was given a second chance for a reason. So, how did I use that chance? I continued living the same. I felt there were no problems in my life. Otherwise, I would have been sent to hell. Life continued on normally for the next 15 years. I eventually met a woman named Michelle who would eventually become my wife. We had three kids, two girls and one boy and we lived simple and well. I continued my job as a construction worker and even got promoted a couple years ago. My salary went up significantly and we moved into a new home last year that was much bigger than the one before. Russell died a couple years ago and we got a new bulldog named Sarah. Unlike Russell, she loved going on night walks with me as we went every night together. I realized that I enjoyed having more company with me on these walks. I never realized how lonely it was until I had someone with me. Sarah was my protector. As anyone who we'd passed on walks, she would growl until I told her to calm down. I never told Michelle that I had died before. She knew that I was in a car accident, but she didn't know what I experienced at that time. On my 45th birthday, my family and I decided to go out and eat at our favorite restaurant next door. After dinner, they surprised me with a huge chocolate cake which was my favorite. I looked around as I was eating my cake and realized how good of a life I had now. I had a wonderful wife, a beautiful family. This was my second chance. As we walked home from dinner we decided to take a trail that we knew was a shortcut to our house. On the trail, we looked at the beautiful stars in the sky in the night and talked as we walked. And then I saw a man approaching us quickly. He had all black on and I couldn't see his face until he was close. He had dark, swollen eyes with big purple bags hanging from underneath them. He was tall and skinny and had short black hair. He stopped right in front of us and reached into his pocket, where he pulled out a gun. Everything you got, he said in a deep, gruff voice. My kids started to cry and the man pointed the gun at them, screaming, Tell the little brats to shut the hell up, or I'll make them. My wife hushed the kids as we gave the man our wallet. He took them and pointed his gun at Michelle's ring and said, The ring, give it to me. My wife looked at the ring, and then at me, and said to the man, ''No.'' ''Give me the ring, or I'll blow your brains out,'' he said, pointing the gun at her head. Michelle again, somehow said in a calm voice, ''No.'' I wasn't surprised. She loved that ring with everything she had. It was a big diamond ring, which was very expensive, and then I gave to her in Hawaii when I proposed. I looked at her terrified, but she looked back at me somehow with a calm expression. ''Stupid,'' I heard the man say, pointing the gun even closer to her. Without even thinking, I ran towards him and tackled him. We wrestled for a bit on the ground, and then we both heard a loud bang from the gun. The man got up after the shot and fled as people now were visible on the trail. I looked down and touched my stomach, and to my shock, my hands were red with blood. My family screamed when I fell to the ground, blood coming out more rapidly from my stomach where the shot was. People on the trail started to run towards, as I heard my wife say with tears in her eyes, ''Hang in there honey, you'll be okay, please stay with us.'' The world started to turn black now. No, not now. Not when everything is so perfect. I could hear the cries of my wife and children as people crowded around. And then I was gone. I was falling again now. The feeling all too familiar. I landed with a loud thump on the ground. And then I stood up quickly and started banging my hands on the ground with tears in my eyes. Why now? Why? I screamed into the dark void. Everything was right. My life was so perfect. And then the elder boomed again. Silence, human. I stopped screaming, still with tears in my eyes. We gave you another chance, but yet you are here, the elder said. It wasn't my fault. I was protecting my family. I screamed back, not caring anymore what they would do to me. The voice was quiet, and then it boomed louder than I had ever heard it before. No human has ever spoken to the elders like that. You should beg for your sins to be healed. And then the arms came and picked me up again. I kicked and screamed even louder. The fire then came into view. The all too familiar screams and cries came back. No, not again. I screamed as I felt the arms pull me down. I begged for mercy and cried to the elders. They didn't come. And as I got closer and closer to the fire, I thought to my family, my beautiful wife, my wonderful kids. Tears poured out of my eyes knowing I would never see them again. I closed my eyes. The image of my family in my mind. When I opened my eyes again, I was back in the void. I got up as I heard the voice boom. Kneel. I kneeled quickly, unsure of what was going to happen. Although you disrespected us, we have decided to give you mercy one final time. We have seen what you have done with your life now. You have finally found value in this world." I cried tears of joy, knowing that I would see my family again. And then the voice said, "'Know this, Joe Tafford. This truly is your final chance. If you die again, you will never return to the real world.'" "'I know. Thank you,' I said quietly. I closed my eyes and started to fall again into the darkness. As I fell, though, instead of fear that I felt the first time, I felt happy. I was going to be with my family, see them grow up, and be a father to them. I closed my eyes, smiling, as a single tear rolled down my face. I opened my eyes and found that I was in a hospital again. My family were all sitting in chairs crying, But once they saw me, they ran over, now crying tears of joy. I hugged them with all my might, crying as well. The next five years were great, but the last fifteen years have been a living hell. My daughters grew up fine and were wonderful until high school, and then they started to hang with the wrong crowd, smoking and drinking all the time. We argued with them all the time, but they never listened. They continued to drink and smoke until one night, I got a call from the police. My daughters were in a car accident, and they had died upon impact. The police learned from a friend of theirs that they left the party that they were at, and they were extremely intoxicated. The friend tried to warn them, but they didn't listen. Michelle and I were heartbroken, and the death of our daughters is what led to our divorce shortly after While my daughters became a mess, my son was perfect. He was everything a parent would want a child to be. He was kind, smart, intelligent, and he never argued with us. I loved him so much and I was shattered when Michelle took him away after the divorce. They moved all the way to New York and I haven't seen my son since. I've tried writing to him but I've never got a response. I tried calling but he never answered. When all couldn't get worse, my sister got cancer a couple of months ago and she died at last. Everything was gone now. As I sat on my couch one day drinking, I thought to myself, did they know this was going to happen? Is that why they sent me back? Was this my punishment for disrespecting them? I sit here writing this now with a gun in my hands. I want everyone to know that there may be a god, but there isn't just one, and they are not forgiving. If you ever disrespect them, you will be cursed like I have been. I was given two chances, and I've wasted both of them. I'm ready now to accept my fate. I have seen how and have truly experienced it. I no longer have a purpose for this world, but I have one in the void, and it's calling to me now. Don't swim in these sinkholes in Mexico Written by Tsar Slavyan Most of us live in naive ignorance. We live in an existence perpetuated by the modern world that has us believing everything can be rationally explained. Science, reason, and logic have, for the most part, appeared to have triumphed over superstition. I was once like this too, understanding with near certainty That if I could not touch or observe something myself, that it was likely to have no substance behind it, and not exist. This all changed when I lost my wife. We had been together for years, and our favorite thing to do was travel together. The only issue was that we had very different ideas of what constituted a vacation. She loved lounging on beaches, reading books, and sipping fruity drinks, as she relaxed and forgot about the hustle of the world back home. I on the other hand am a huge history buff. I love visiting ancient sites and walking in the footsteps of those who had lived hundreds of thousands of years before. Naturally, this meant that we took several trips to the Mediterranean as a compromise. Italy, Greece, Spain, and Egypt, to name a few. All places where you can easily find new beaches and historical sites within a stone's throw. The pandemic, however, really put a stop to our plans for several months. As we were on lockdown and constantly working from home, the idea of a getaway started to become more and more appealing. Unfortunately, no place in Europe would take us at the time, having closed off their borders to Americans. However, we did find a place which was accessible to us. Mexico. The more that we looked into it, the more perfect it began to seem. Countless beaches and resorts, and if we chose the right region, we could easily take a day tour to some Mayan ruins. We would both get what we wanted, and also finally be able to get out of the house for a little while. I booked us the plane tickets and the resort room, and in a few weeks... We were packing and getting all ready for our trip. The flight there went smoothly, as did the first few days of our vacation. I hate to admit it, but my wife did have a point. It was nice to just lay there on the beach, having cocktails and not having to worry about a thing. The resort that we were staying in was nice, with all of our meals and drinks already included. Given how much the world had changed in just the last several months, it was so nice to finally take a break from everything. The day of our booked tour came just a couple of days before we were scheduled to fly home. A scheduled tour bus picked us up in a designated location, along with ten other tourists. The tour guide, Miguel, Miguel. Laid out our schedule of the day as the bus began to drive. We would first be taken to the ancient Maya ruins of Chichen Itza, followed by a lunch at a local restaurant. After this, we would stop for a brief swim in a cenote, which is a sinkhole that exposes groundwater, after which we would be brought back to our hotel. I found walking the ruins of Chichen Itza very interesting. Miguel took us all on our guided tour of the site, explaining the ancient way of life of the Maya. He went into great depths of other gods, such as Itzam, who appeared to be the head honcho among all the gods, the rain god Chak, and Ekchua, the god of human sacrifice. Although she wasn't nearly as intrigued as I was, I could tell my wife was a feigning fascination for my sake. I could tell that she was very much looking forward to a swim in the cenote, as it appeared to be more in line with what she enjoyed to do. And of course, it would give her some pretty epic picture to put up on her Instagram. Once we had finished touring Chichen Itza and had finished eating our lunch, our tour bus took us to the cenote. I must admit, it was very picturesque. The light coming in from the top of the sinkhole gave the water an exceptionally light blue appearance. The limestone surrounding the interior of the sinkhole gave it a much more surreal form. We were told that we had an hour in the cenote, which was plenty of time to swim around and take pictures. True to his word, within an hour, Miguel had called us all back, saying that time was up and that we had to return to the tour bus. Of all the tourists, my wife and I had swum the furthest away from the crude ladder that was used to get into the water. We waited as all the other tourists had gotten out of the water and started walking out of the cenote. And then we began to swim over to the ladder, jokingly making it into a race. Childishly ecstatic that I had won, I climbed up the ladder first, with both of us laughing over the moment of fun that we had just had. As I made the transition from the last step of the ladder to the platform, I heard a splash and some air bubbles. I turned around, only to see that my wife was no longer there. I thought it was a joke at first. So, I just stood there, with my arms crossed and a smug look on my face, waiting for my wife to breach the surface of the water laughing. 10 seconds. 30 seconds. After a minute, I became worried. I jumped in to find her, but the cenote was too deep, and the visibility under the water was not great to begin with. I jumped out, barely noticing that it had started to rain, and frantically ran to Miguel, hysterically explaining everything that had happened. The authorities were called in, and they came with some diving equipment. They frustratingly took their own time, believing that after all the time had passed since my wife had gone missing, that this was not a rescue, but a body retrieval. They spent what seemed like hours diving in the cenote, but they couldn't find any trace of her. They appeared to want to just give up and go home. I pleaded with them in hysterics, I didn't know any Spanish, and they knew very little English. Most of the translation between us was being done by the tour guide, Miguel. As I sank to the ground, about to break into tears, one of the officers patted me on the shoulder. I looked up at him. He was an older man, probably in his 50s or 60s. Probably not far from retirement. He had a look of pity on his face. ''I'm sorry, mijo,'' he said. ''The old gods, they still take some With another pat on my shoulder, he walked to join his comrades in the police car. I was shuttled back to my hotel, sitting in a dumbstruck silence all I could think about was what the old officer had told me. The old gods. Sometimes, they still take. Upon returning to our room, all I wanted to do was lay down and cry. Just twelve hours ago, I had my wife here with me, and now, I was all alone. I couldn't though, I couldn't just lay there and give up. I had this feeling that I had to do something. Anything. I opened up my laptop and I started digging through whatever information I could find. On cenotes. On this particular region of Mexico. On the Maya. Anything that was even remotely related. I read up on. I found out that within a reasonable drive of where I was staying there is a region of Mexico that remains heavily populated by Maya who still follow some of the old traditions and beliefs of their ancient ancestors. As soon as the sun rose, I rented a car and made my way in the direction of this area. About an hour in, the road ceased to be paved, and I was driving on dirt. I stopped at every village I could. I stopped to talk to everyone who was on the side of the road. I pleaded with them to help me. Unfortunately, this wasn't an area where English was well known. I used hand gestures and every other form of communication that I could possibly think of. But nothing was working for me. After what seemed like hours of trying to communicate with the local Maya, I was ready to just sink to my knees, as I did near the cenote, and give up. But at that moment, a woman carrying a basket of corn passed by, I hear you, you speak to others," she said. I was dumbstruck. It was obvious her English was very rudimentary, but it was the most that I had heard out of anyone near here. Without another word, I simply went on about what had happened to my wife. She listened, probably only understanding less than half of what I was saying. But her eyes got wide when I mentioned the word cenote. God Chok, very powerful, live in bottom of Cenote. Who? I asked back. Chok. God of of. She seemed to not have the words. She pointed to the sky, And then made a gesture with her fingers coming down. Rain, I exclaimed. See, rain, she answered back. In old time, before Spanish, our people push pretty girls in Cenote. For shock. He give rain. It was all making sense. The ancient Maya used to sacrifice young girls in Cenote. All over the Yucatan Peninsula. Cenote, just like the one that we were swimming in just the other day. I threw a $100 bill at the woman in my haste, without saying another word, and I got back in the car. I drove back all the way on the dirt road, past the tourist area that we were staying at, and all the way back to the cenote. I noticed it was abandoned with no tourists, probably none of the tour guides wanted to risk it after what had happened to my wife just the day before. I spoke to the water, feeling like an idiot, but not knowing what else to do. I pleaded with shock, I begged him, finally I promised him. As soon as the last word left my lips, bubbles appeared at the surface. My wife breached the water, looking just as she had the last time that I saw her. I helped her out of the cenote and embraced her harder than I ever had before. Told her that I loved her. She appeared confused as to why we were alone at the cenote at night. And as I spoke more to her, she appeared to have no memory of the past day. I didn't press the subject any further, driving us back to our hotel. We only had a day left in our vacation after all that, and I let her enjoy every second of it, lounging on the beach, although my heart did drop every time she stepped in the water. Fortunately, nothing bad happened. We flew back home the next day with no problem. And just a couple of months later, I was ecstatic when she told me that we would be expecting our first child soon. Just the other day, though, we learned something that made me far less excited. Something that made me much more anxious. Something... That reminded me of the promise I had made to Jock, as I knelt next to the water of the cenote, pleading for him to return my wife. It turns out that our baby is going to be a girl. We were forced to search for something in the static. You should have a little listen. Written by AP Royal When the elders spoke, you listened. I learned this from an early age, and those that didn't, the problem children, they never seemed to last. So I listened. The problem was, I didn't always understand. Why were they keeping us here? Why the same routine? They would never tell me, plus I wanted to survive, so I was a good little boy. I looked around at the other good little boys and girls, the solemn faces of kids who were once happy. We should have been in school, instead we were here. Our mornings were spent in the static, sat side by side, row by row, on long tables. This part of the facility was called the Great Room, but nothing great happened here. It was a cold, metal box with dim, fluorescent lighting. The humdrum buzzing would start low, as a noise that was almost soothing. I could never pinpoint the source, but my best guess was the ventilation system. The vibrations slowly crept up on you, as the static incrementally got louder. Sometimes it would buzz, sometimes hiss, sometimes hum. It seemed to fluctuate and change depending on the frequency they were using. Eventually, it would be turned all the way up, turning into a deafening crackle. The sound waves were deafening, pounding your eardrums and rattling your skull. With our heads laid down on the cold metal table, we would painfully wait for it to be over, and then do it all again tomorrow. Mommy used to tell me if you look hard enough for something, you will eventually find it. We were searching for something in these sessions, for what, I didn't quite know. But some of the others figured it out and I was jealous of each and every one of them. Kyle's hand shot up, his chair squeaking from the sudden jerk. He was shaking as he whispered into one of the elder's ears. Kyle was one of the older kids. He had a few whiskers growing from his mustache. My best guess was that he was maybe 12 and he had been at this place much longer than I had. The one that approached we called Big Booty Judy for obvious reasons. She smiled at Kyle as she whispered back, waddling her massive fanny in delight. Lucky guy, I thought, as she escorted him down the hall. He had a dumbfounded look, all the way out of the room. We would never see him again, and he knew it. The static was your ticket to freedom. Whatever they were hearing pleased the elders. You could tell by their stupid smirks. I missed Mama. I wished every night we could go back to how it was. We had been struggling for a while in and out of shelters, but at least we were together. She accepted change one day from a black sedan. The driver was friendly, a pretty woman with deep green eyes. They had a long conversation and we hopped into the vehicle. Mama always said, never hop into a stranger's vehicle. But we did that time and everything changed. After the static sessions, we were escorted to the hall for breakfast. The high metal ceilings reminded me of a hangar. This was the rec room and dining section of the facility. Numerous tables were positioned around a buffet line of food. Fruits and cereals were laid out for our choosing. In the corner was the gymnasium, a room for the kids to blow off steam. It was just a large room with hardwood floors, but I imagined bleachers and basketball hoops just like my school back home. As much as this place was a prison, they sure did try their best to make sure that we were kept healthy. The hall was the best place to be. Us kids were left to be, well, kids. Me and my friends always sat at the back of the cafeteria, as far away from the elders as possible. What do you think they hear, Jay? And Carrie asked, as she donned her glass of chocolate milk. Now if I know, I said, playing with the Cheerios in my bowl. The kids that heard something got to leave, so no one ever stuck around to compare notes. ''You have any idea?'' I asked. Carrie shrugged, returning to her oatmeal. ''I'm so sick of this place,'' Kai declared, batting a strand of curly hair out of his eyes. ''I'm just going to lie tomorrow, say I hear Big Judy's farts through the static.'' hard table erupted in laughter, to the dismay of a few elders passing by. Lying wasn't an option. The elders explained that they had a process prior to release. If they caught you, there were severe consequences, which I had no intention to find out. (laughs) What's so funny, kids? One of the elders inquired. He was an older man with a peculiar smell of mothballs. Oh, nothing here. I mean, Harry, Kai said. Carrie and I snickered, almost choking on our food. You better focus today, Kai. I not want to put you in your place again, like last week. The old man warned. That would be funny for me. Not so funny for you, he grinned. As he walked away, Carrie slapped Kai on the arm. You nearly gave it up. I couldn't help it, Kai chuckled. It's all that I could stare at. We watched the old man with his hands behind his back, slowly perusing the other tables for mischief. I'm kind of jealous. Those things must keep him warm in the winter, I said. Our table shook again with laughter, as earmuff Harry glared back at us. I imagined his long, white ear hairs swaying by as he walked, Without friends like Kai and Carrie, I didn't think I could have made it this long. The nicknames were mean, but they kept us sane and helped distract us from our gloomy predicament. The static boomed out from the intercom system. I'll proceed to the viewing room. A raspy voice announced. You heard the intercom, get a move on. Earmuff Harry shouted. Everyone from the cafeteria and gymnasium were funneled down a narrow hallway. The access door was only opened during viewing hours. I glanced at the countless doors that we passed by, wondering what was beyond them. And then I thought twice and hoped to never find out. The elder that we called Freddy Flax was making himself useful. He held the door open and shouted, Find your seat, put your headphones on, you know the drill. All of the elders wore the same uniform, black button up shirt and black jeans. But no one wore them quite like Freddy. He left a few buttons loose and wore the smallest size possible. Wants us to be afraid of his roided-up muscles, Kaya joked once. It had worked on me. I minded my P's and Q's around him. The viewing room was a cramped space with rows of single wooden desks. The tablets sat with a metal stand anchoring them to the table. I made my way to my seat, waving by to Kai and Carrie. Returning kids always sat in the same spot, our name laminated and glued to the back of the seat. Mine was memorized. Fourth row, third seat from the left. I powered up the tablet and grabbed the headphones. Only the media app worked on the damn thing. My side in boredom had opened up. Viewing J. Moir, dot move. Pay attention, everyone. The quicker you finish, the more time you will have in the hall. Freddy yelled. Viewing time was insufferable, but you had to be on high alert. They were monitoring you closely in very tight quarters. Once... I had made the mistake of nodding off and Fred swatted me so hard my neck had a nasty bruise for a week. And I was lucky, considering I had seen kids get dragged out, possibly to one of those mystery rooms. It was the same video every time, the audio replaced with static. I watched the point of view footage of someone walking through the city at night. It looked like the downtown of a major hub. One that I didn't recognize. The atmosphere was lively. Traffic was jammed up on both sides of the street. And young people were lined up to get into restaurants and bars. I tried my best to pinpoint street names, recognize landmarks, and any sort of clues. It was useless. I had never been outside of Greenwich, Connecticut. And without Google, it was information that would go nowhere. We entered one of the tall, skyscraper buildings and took an elevator up to the top floor. It was a stunning Garden Terrace restaurant with twinkle lights around. We did a lap, walking around the edge of the rooftop, outside of the restaurant, overlooking the city. And then, the video cut out. What do you guys see in yours? I asked as we made our way back to the cafeteria. "'Mine is some lake out in the country. It looks real pretty,' Carrie said. "'I hope I get the chance to see it in person someday.' Carrie smiled. "'Mine's on a spaceship. I'm strapped to the floor as these bug-eyed things pick at my insides,' Kai said. "'Really?' Carrie asked. "'Kai laughed with glee. "'Nah, I wish. Mine's just some boring hotel.' I shared mine as we contemplated what the videos could mean. After viewing, we were free to do what we wanted. We usually spent it in the gymnasium playing tag or dodgeball. After dinner, we were chaperoned to our bedrooms in the south wing. A large room filled with bunk beds along the walls. Bedtime was quiet time, which meant zero communication. Quiet time was the toughest Having Kai and Carrie around helped distract me from my thoughts. The silence was deadly. It left me alone, which always resulted in tears. Like Groundhog Day, time passed, but the days were all the same. How much time was a mystery. There were no clocks, and no calendars here. The results were what mattered to them, and they were willing to wait as long as it took to get them. Some kids laughed. Some kids replaced them. My heart wrenched when Carrie put up her hand in static. Tears welled up in her eyes as she waved goodbye to me and Kai for the last time. Maybe a week or two after Carrie had left, you could feel the tone of the facility start to shift. There was something going on in the background. Something they were trying to conceal. But we noticed. The elders were a lot shorter with us. These static sessions were getting longer, and then one afternoon, loud beeps echoed through the hall. Kai and I froze, puzzled looks across their faces. Code Black, everyone report to the Great Room. The announcement reverberated around the gym walls. A couple of older female elders stormed the gym. You heard the announcement, let's go. Their batons were fully extended and both were panting for air. Kai dropped the dodgeball as we followed the herd of people. I had never seen the great room so jammed packed before. The children sat in their typical seats, but the walls were lined with elders. There were so many elders, many of which I had never seen before. There were ones with white lab coats clutching their clipboards. There were men with camo jumpsuits and guns. Big guns. The nervous tension in the room was thick and uncomfortable. A tall, bald man appeared and slowly walked to the front of the room. He was followed by a few others in white uniforms carrying binders, one of which was a lady I recognized immediately. She was the generous woman in the black sedan. It is time. The bald man hollered from the front of the room. His voice was the raspy voice from our daily announcements. The elders closed the steel doors and barricaded them with furniture. The followers placed the binders on the floor as everyone looked on. The bald man nodded to someone in the back, and the static began to hiss. "'I truly thank everyone for these sacrifices that have been made,' There has been major progress. These findings will be undeniable. He motioned to a group of elders in the corner. They began handing out something in the palm of the hand to every adult around the room. Boom, boom. Thunderous crunching sounds. Muffled cries and shrieks rang out from the kids. Kai gave me a frightened glance from a couple of rows in front. They do not understand now. But the impact of this study will last forever. Booming again, heavy sounds of abashed metal coming from outside. Closer. The static was turned up to high, ringing wild in my ears. The camel elders with the guns approached the front of the room. "Remember the static kids," the bald man screamed. "You will always have the static." Booming. This time the wall shook as the steel frame crunched and twisted from the impact. The bald man nodded to the crowd of elders as they popped something into their mouths and sang. Kids, under the table, he barked, barely audible over the hum. We obeyed as I crouched underneath. All of the innocent young faces stared back at each other, some crying, some shaking, some frozen in fear. Two more loud booms, I closed my eyes, clutching my knees as the denting persisted. And that's when the static spoke to me, the trauma triggering a response. My head ached as I concentrated to make out the words, like whispers amongst all of the commotion. Jay, it's mama, do you hear me? It was that loving, familiar voice. I couldn't believe it. There was a crash screams from the elders rang out. Jay, do you hear me? I hear you mama, I-, I love you, I said, fighting back tears. At that moment, I didn't care how this was happening. I shut out the chaos so that I could hear her mom. I love you so much baby boy, you have been so strong, I'm so proud, she sobbed. A barrage of gunshots erupted from the back of the room. The kid screamed. Listen to me. What I'm going to tell you is important. Go on, Mama. I said, trying my best to focus. In Chicago, there's a restaurant called The Garden. It's on the top of a high-rise building downtown. The images from my viewing sessions flash back on my mind. I think I know, Mama. I think I know where. Good, baby boy. I always knew you were so smart. Find a way to get there. Talk to Aunt Lisa or Uncle Ronnie and dig in the shrubbery, northeast corner away from the restaurant. There is more money than God for you and instructions on how to receive it, she said. You will never have to struggle, baby boy. No more. I heard a tiny ping as a bullet ricocheted into a little girl's arm next to me. She bellowed in agony as blood oozed from the wound. I will, Mama, I cried. Things are really scary here at the moment, but I will get out soon and when I do, we can go together. Good boy, she paused, taking a breath in. But honey, I won't be able to go with you. My stomach turned. Mom, I don't understand. Don't you want to see me? A policeman in body armor crouched down and grabbed my arm. I had been focused on the static. I hadn't noticed that the gunshots had subsided. The children that survived were being ushered out, one by one stepping around all the bodies and pools of blood. Honey, Mama is dead. Dead. The word knocked the wind right out of my lungs. The room began to spin. None of this made sense. None of it at all. Honey, are you okay? I know this is a lot. I dug my heels into the concrete and wriggled free of the officer's grip. He reached out again for my arm but missed, as I dropped down to my knees. The hell is wrong with you, kid? Look around. He motioned to the bodies, lifeless and scattered across the room. They all wore frozen expressions of terror, their wounds still seeping blood. I winced as I spotted Kai, a bullet wound through his forehead. It was carnage, and amongst it all, a few of the cops were stepping past the bodies. They were trying their best to salvage the remains of a pile of bloody, shredded paper. We have to get out of here, he warned. I couldn't, not yet. Not after the bombshell that just dropped on me. Mama, that's crazy talk. It's not true. The static continued to steadily hum through the walls. I could see the officer in front of me, flagging down a few other officers by the door. Blood was splattered on their SWAT vests, like an abstract art piece. He grabbed my arm. Mama, they've got me. They're taking me away." I shrieked, as three of them grabbed my flailing limbs. I resisted as best I could, pushing them away. Their combined strength was too much for me. They carried me out by my arms and legs, the deafening static fading away with every step. "'Be strong, baby boy,' she wailed. "'Remember, Chicago, and the static.' I was bawling hysterically as they carried me through the doorway into the hall. I love you, a faint whisper in the distance. I was lugged past the remains of crunched metal as we turned left on a corridor. There was an ungodly amount of stairs before the sunlight hit us. I squinted as the scorching rays warmed my pale skin, a foreign feeling I hadn't experienced for a very long time. They placed me on the sand, as I shielded my eyes from the rays. "'Where are we?' I asked. "'Arizona,' one of the officers said. The Sonoran Desert, to be exact. He opened the door of a large black van with tinted windows. Inside, a group of exhausted children all huddled together. "'Get in, kid. We're going home.' We drove through the barren desert for what felt like hours, six black vans speeding through the sand. The wheels kicked up dust that we could taste through the cracked windows in the back. We had done the unthinkable, escaped. The look of calm was evident on our faces. I closed my eyes, traveling through the streets of downtown Chicago in my dreams. I wiped the sleep away as we came to a stop. I imagined walking through a police station, just like a crime documentary. I was wrong. We were being ushered through the doors of a brick office building. Above the door, a sign read, For Lease. Kids, you must be hungry, thirsty. A lady with kind eyes and a maroon dress shirt greeted us at the door. Her badge swayed side to side as she handed out brown paper bags and water bottles. My stomach growled in response as I peeked inside. Cookies? No way, I said. She smiled. A man removed his SWAT vest and helped lead the kids out to one of the boardrooms. We were packed in there like sardines, with kids vastly outnumbering chairs. The overflow sat on the carpet and attacked their bag lunch tuna sandwiches, carrots, and celery sticks, an apple, and chocolate chip cookies to top it all off. Kids, my name is Officer Terry, the man said, and this is Officer Karina. He pointed to the lady who was now helping clean up the garbage. You kids have been so brave through all of this, he paused, nervously tapping his fist on the table. We are going to get you home as soon as possible, wherever that may be. As there are so many of you here, we will need to get testimonies from each and every one of you, and then we can figure out our next steps forward. Then Terry and Karina took a child one by one into the office next door, while a couple of the other officers supervised us. We would wait 15 minutes or so and the next one would rotate through. It took hours, Karina nudged me awake when it was finally my turn. I spilled my guts out to them. The story came with a lot of tears. I told them everything about the facility. I even told them about the static, the money, even the communication with my mother. They were both extremely attentive. Karina feverishly took down notes and Terry raised his eyebrows during parts and stroked his mustache during others. It was such a relief to be heard, whether they believed me or not. When we finished, they cleaned up my clothing as best they could and gathered my contact info. Terry winked, rubbing my greasy mop of hair. We'll be in touch, kiddo. Take care of yourself. We called up Aunt Lisa, who had me on the first flight out of Scottsdale, Arizona to Chicago, Illinois. "'Jay, look at you. I can't believe it's actually you.' Aunt Lisa pulled me into her chest. She smelled like petunias and was wearing her favorite flowery blouse, the one she claimed hit her figure nicely. It had been four years since I last saw her, two and a half years stuck in the facility. All my auntie and uncle knew was that I was found and that the authorities were looking into the abduction.' They asked about mom and I didn't know what to say. I finally spat out that she was still missing. Aunt Lisa broke down, retreating to her bedroom, while Uncle Ronnie stuck around for condolences. I'm so sorry, Jay. They'll find her like they found you. He stopped to catch his composure. Jill had too much pride, you know. You both could have always stayed here with us, you know that. I nodded. I would need some time before I opened up to them about what had happened to me. We watched some television before I asked Uncle Ronnie for a radio. He gave me a puzzled look. Um, maybe. Why the heck would you want that? Oh, I don't know. I like opening it up and fiddling with the parts. I fibbed. He shrugged and went searching in the attic finally bringing down auntie's FM radio player. The thing was ancient, dusty, and heavy as a brick, but it worked. The once traumatic buzzing now sounded like music to my ears. That night, I fiddled with the dials, searching through the FM frequency for Mom. Mama, can you hear me? The intensity of the static paled in comparison to the facility, You could hear a pitiful hissing, but it was hard to avoid the pop tunes and 80s hits. Mama. No response. I tried for another few hours or so before giving up. That night, I tossed and turned, wallowing in the emptiness that only an orphan could understand. The next morning, I lasered in on the restaurant, The Garden, it was an upscale tapas restaurant in the River North District. From their website, it looked like a place where you could shell out $100 and still go home hungry. Definitely not the sort of place Ray's not-nosed kid to walk into, unattended. Asking auntie or uncle to come here felt unreasonable, and may raise unwanted questions. Mind to come up with another way? We had basa fillets and rice for dinner that night. At around 8pm, I headed to my room. I told Aunt Lisa I was feeling tired. The fish didn't sit with me well, I said. I was going to turn in early and try to sleep it off. I locked the bedroom door and grabbed my backpack. I slipped on the nicest pair of clothes that I could find. A white polo shirt two sizes too small, and some equally tight black dress pants. They were Uncle Ronnie's clothes as a kid unflattering but passable, pending that I didn't rip a hole in my butt on the journey there. Slipping out the window was easy. I followed the eerie gleam of the streetlights half a block or so to the 401 bus stop. From the bench, I stared back at the brick bungalow and white picket fence, wondering what the hell I was doing. I took two buses to get there, the directions like a movie playing in the back of my mind. I was in the heart of downtown, the sounds of traffic and police sirens going off in the distance. The garden had an energy to it, an atmosphere that enveloped you as soon as you walked through the doors. There was a lineup right as you got off the elevators, adults in slim-footed suits and ladies in elegant dresses. The garden terrace was a giant patio, complete with twinkle lights strung up along high wooden canopies. Bronze statues of biblical figures were carefully dispersed amongst the dining area. I didn't have much to compare it to. We never had the money growing up to dine anywhere proper, but the design left me in awe. It would be hours waiting in this queue, so I decided to walk to the front. Can I help you? The server asked, an annoying tone in his voice. He spoke with a lisp, and Ted Black slicked back hair. I was staring at the strange statue in front of him. It looked like Adam and Eve, bronze leaves covering their genitals. Oh, sorry, my mom and dad are just inside. I had to grab something from the car. Okay, sir, follow me, he said. Which table are you seated at? I scurried past him. It's okay, we're seated in the back, I'll find them. Dashing past the tables of people, I glanced back to ensure that he wasn't telling me. The coast was clear. The restaurant was centered on the rooftop making up approximately two-thirds of the space. The surrounding periphery was pitch black and filled with potted plants. It truly was a garden and this empty space left you alone to enjoy the views of the windy city. But tonight, it was my excavation site. I followed my memories to the spot where the filming had ceased. I found the exact spot of shrubs and pulled out the flashlight from my bag. My heart sank. The soil looked like it had been disturbed already. The dirt was in uneven waves around the bush. I placed the light on the corner of the pot and sunk my fingers into the cool, wet earth. I started digging, like a dog paddling in water. Nothing. How? I heard rustling in front of me. I shot my flashlight, the beam of light capturing a blur of movement. Hey, kid! The slick-haired server yelled from the corner of the restaurant. I turned behind to look, just as the bullet whizzed past my ear. It shot through one of the twinkle lights, shattering the glass into fragments. I flinched and then ducked behind a nearby plant. The gunshot sent the restaurant into a frenzy. Some dashed for the elevator, some screamed, some took cover under their tables. Remain calm everyone, the cops are here already, Chicago PD are here, one of the servers yelled. At the elevators, a group of cops were searching the guests in line. A couple of others walked into the restaurant. I ran past the server into the crowd of people. Zigzagging through the maze of plants. I tried my best to blend in, cowering behind a cluster of nervous faces. I settled on a tall man in a brown blazer, the perfect human shield. The server chased after me, grabbing one of the cops. The kid over there, please have him searched. The gunshot, it came from that way, the server said. He pointed and the cops had followed. Clumps of soil stuck to my palms as I wiped them on my pants. You, J. Mowar, kid," the cop asked. I contemplated my response. "Uh, yeah. Why?" More gunshots rang out. I flinched again. Another woman screamed in terror. "We got him, Jerry," he nodded to his partner, who was strip-searching a group of yuppies beside us. Jerry spoke for a few minutes into his receiver. As I thought about the missing money, they got me. And more importantly, they got the shooter. Her kind eyes replaced with rage. My jaw dropped as they dragged Karina out of the darkness in cuffs. Her hands were covered in soil. You arrest cops, I asked. Jerry shook his head. She ain't a cop, kid. Far from it. He opened the door to the back of his squad car. Hop in. Back at the precinct, I sat for hours alone in an interrogation room. Eventually, Jerry walked in and we traded information. Apparently, Terry and Karina had been wanted for years. Those were not their real names. They weren't cops and they were contract criminals. Jerry was able to link them to multiple organized crime groups, one of which specialized in deep voice fraud. What is Deep Voice? I asked. It's advanced AI technology. Basically, a program can copy your recorded voice and, through algorithms, generate a conversation which replicates your tone. He took a sip of his coffee. Someone had spotted Karina at O'Hare. We followed them to your aunt's house, Jay. Do you know that you were being followed? I shook my head. It seems like there are a lot of things I don't know. They apprehended Terry and a couple of other cops from Arizona, staking out the house. An undercover cop had followed Karina to the restaurant that night. They had also followed me there too. I told Jerry about my time at the facility and everything that I had been through. The only thing that I left out was the money. He seemed like a real cop, but I wasn't about to be fooled twice. I'm confused. Why would they want to kill me? We think they were contracted out by a group of hackers called Dialax. They're powerful people, Jay. Known for some of the biggest social engineering scams in the world. They're always fighting battles for technology, for information, for turf. Have you heard of this group before? I shook my head again. I thought you might have. Thought that maybe with your time at the facility, that they believed you knew too much... You see, our cybercoms division has been tracking this group for years. He paused. We were able to recover some voice recordings they had from your mother. My face went pale. We think she may still be alive. The police spent months trying to track down Jill Mawar back in Greenwich. She wasn't the easiest person to lock down. They scoped out the local shelter set up flyers around town and knocked door-to-door. No one had seen her for quite some time. This rollercoaster of events had left me mentally drained. Aunt Lisa and Uncle Ronnie were amazing pillars of support, but the loneliness was overwhelming and taking its toll day by day. This new theory had my hopes up. I really wanted to believe she was still alive. One day, I finally had enough of the waiting. I needed to hear from her again. Whether it was the real her or the fake recording of her, I didn't care. I bought myself a Frank's box. Aunt Lisa thought I was going crazy. I didn't care. I went hunting for mama every night. It was the only shot that I had. I fell asleep to the static, woke up to the static. As it oscillated through the different frequencies, I prayed that I would speak to her again. Eventually, my prayers were answered. Jay, honey, do you hear me? I woke up in a cold sweat, my heart racing uncontrollably. I stared at my clock. 3.11 AM, baby boy, are you there? It was the tenderness in her voice, her vocabulary, her cadence. Though it was fuzzy, I could hear it. It had to be her. Mama, my voice trembled. I hesitated before asking. How do I know it's really you? Really me? She laughed through quiet sobbing. Aren't you the little boy who wet the bed till he was five? Who wore Spider Man undies till he was? I cut her off. Okay, I believe you. I giggled in the pitch dark. Oh, I can keep going all day. We laughed. I know this is still so weird. But why the test ear? I sniffled. Because they think that you're still out there, Mama. The police. They're looking for you. Honey, I, I told you already. They won't find me. I'm gone. Another word that cut me like a knife. Gone. I explained everything to her the cop's suspicions about the voice recording and where I had been kept all those years. She was finally caught up. She sighed. That's horrible, Jay, to think of everything you have been through at such a young age. She paused. How the hell did we get here? For a moment, there was only silence between us and the hiss of the static. I wish I had all the answers for you, dear. I only know what I know. I did do some recordings for the lady in the black sedan. It was more for legal concerns, so the family or myself didn't hold them liable for anything. She paused. Who knows, maybe she was working both sides. There could have been many things researched in that place. All I know is that there is a lot of money and death, billions of dollars. We all live, we all die. Everyone wants to live forever, be with their loved ones forever. She cleared her throat and continued. Please tell me, Jay, that you found the bag at the garden. I cried again, a wave of sadness washing over my body. It killed me to know that I let my mom down. It wasn't there. I'm so sorry, someone must have gotten to it sooner. I know I followed the video correctly, there was nothing there. You didn't listen to me, Jay, she said sternly. It's not in the direction shown on the video. They see the video. I purposefully hid it elsewhere. Northeast corner, baby. Dig down deep. It's there. Shit. How could I have been so stupid? I'm so sorry, Mama. I promise I'll go looking again tonight. Promise me a couple more things. Okay. Okay. Promise to catch up with me, regularly. I know it's hard, me not being there in the physical, but I'm always there with you. I choked back the tears again, part of me becoming angry. Why did you have to die, mama? I was happy the way things were. She cried. I waited, imagining her sad face, the wrinkles forming on her forehead, me stroking her curly locks of gold, "'When you become a parent someday, you'll understand. "'Some people try their best, but for whatever reason, they never make it. "'They fall into every pitfall. "'Those kinds of people are destined for the gutter. "'You are not one of those people.' "'She paused again, her words shaking. "'Promise me that you will use that money wisely. "'Help others, become somebody.' "'I smiled.' I would have always done that, Mama. She roared with laughter. I know you would have, baby boy. You were always such a smart kid. Too smart for your own good. We made reservations at the garden that following night. It took a lot of begging, but I managed to convince Uncle Ronnie to bite the bullet. I listened to Mama this time. Northeast corner. The duffel bag was soaked and filthy but it was there. It was filled with stacks of cash, a key, and instructions for accessing a safety deposit box in my name. No more struggling for baby boy. I even covered the tab that night. No more sweating for Uncle Ronnie. Most importantly, I planned to be somebody. I planned to make Mama proud. You honor the dead by living and never forgetting who they were.